Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. Our guest today is the author Joseph Farley, but he also goes by Joe. He has produced a number of, it seems, effortless short stories and pieces, work like For the Birds, which is a collection on Cynic Press. We also have the novel Labor Day on Peasantry Press, but also we have Farts and Daydreams on Dumpster Fire Press. Joe, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me, Tori. Well, where do we begin? Uh, I think we were talking uh, beforehand about Farts and Daydreams being uh, a very intriguing collection, and it is. Um, We can start wherever you like, but uh, that collection seems to have some interesting parallels of where you are from or where you're living, Philadelphia. And also it seems like a little longer, a little bit more of a, a growth and development. Is Would that be fair to say over your other work? Uh, is it a growth over my other work? Uh, I Probably a growth over uh, For the Birds. I mean, that was my first story collection. But uh, it, is it a growth over... Labor Day, uh, a novel is a more complex, you know, you're going in one shot. You're doing one direction, doing, telling one major story with minor stories somehow uh, encapsulated in there uh, to follow different characters. Farce and Daydreams is, uh, is a smorgasbord. It's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, so it, it, so it has shows greater breadth, uh, because there's a lot more different things in there, although being a writer, you know, my, my preoccupations are going to pop up more more often and there'll be recurring themes. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many different subjects here and it's like, uh, is there a specific topic or series of topics that you turn back to or just come to your mind that you're writing different variations on? I mean, different stories and different ideas, yes, but maybe there's like a, a common thread? Well, I mean, what do we write about? We write about the, the uh, stories that we were told growing up mm-hmm. from her, from other people. Uh, we write about, or and when I say we, using that royal way, I'm really talking about me because I'm projecting that other writers will do the same thing, and I can't really say that. I don't know. Uh, and we, I write about my experience, uh, especially, you know, there's things that are interesting to you experience or witness or are told about. And then there's things that may not be as interesting to others, but they have an emotional intensity in your memory and in your life. And you try to beef that up. And so there's some things that are real life and some things are stories that you heard or were told or things that just viewed. Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, and there's, daydreams and you know and you have actual dreams and and then you just have philosophical or structural things that you do and i just assume that every story i write is an experiment and as with science some experiments don't work in fact a lot don't work and most of them never see publication but you keep on trying and and you hope that the what gets out there is for the most part a successful experiment Mm-hmm. And how difficult is it now to write about yourself or to write about maybe personal elements? 
One of the issues I had when I seriously began to write about 15 years ago was the effort to keep myself out of it. And then over time, characters in my work began to pull in elements of my life or experiences, and I became comfortable with it over time. How, how is it for you? Well, and there are stories I've wanted to write since I was a teenager, but some of them I can't write because they're too emotionally charged. And you dance around them, you might touch on a theme in a different story, you find a roundabout way of touching the story but not actually telling it. And But it's on my long agenda to actually write maybe 30 or 40 stories about my family and my childhood because you know, this, this, these are the stories, this, these are the events that turn me into the person I am, including being a writer. Uh, you know, you don't, I mean, some people might wake up and say, hey, I'm just going to be a writer today. But I think there's some kind of process that turns you into a writer. Uh, I mean, I mean, someone who's like really like can't escape from, the, you know, I, there's other things I could be doing today. But, oh, I have to write. Why do I have to write? I'm not making money. It's not not my profession, so to speak, but I have I have this compulsion to write. Why? And there's these things that happen to you in your childhood or in your youth. And, and I, I say, well, you like to examine them at some level and then hope that they're of interest to others. Um, but uh, so I occasionally touch on those types of things. But um, it's, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to take on some of them on uh, you know, head on at some point. It's a lot, one of the benefits of fiction is you can dance around things and you can cloud the story and uh, veil, put seven veils over it so that it's not so painful or and to you and as the writer it's to read and also maybe not so painful to your relatives or and most importantly you don't want it to be too painful for the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the uh, things. It's like you want to keep certain people out of it or at least not have them in too much. I've always had people ask me like, uh, you know, how much of your family is, is in this story or that story? And I've made it very plain. None of them are in this. I, because part of it is I don't want, I, I don't need certain members of my family that are still alive to come back and be like, how do why did you write me like that? And then of course I'm going to have other members of my family that are going to be like, why am I not in it? <laughs> I, I, I've heard, I've been, yeah, people, why don't you write a story about me? Because you'll hate me if I do. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, put me in a, in a sonnet. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And you'll hate me still. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it does seem that way. It's like um, you were talking about sort of putting the veil over things. Uh, some of the stories in Farts and Daydreams, some of the short ones, there was a couple that jumped out at me when I was reading initially, and I was quite taken by the interesting ones, like there's this one called Anointed. That was such an interesting encounter. Well, uh, Anointed, well, you have spirituality and comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, if you're going to be spiritual in any way, shape, or form, you better have a sense of humor because I can never be a literalist anyway. But the, uh, but I can, I can certainly, you know, you know, 
assume that God has a sense of humor because I don't think um, much of what happens in this world would occur if God did not have a sense of humor. Um, the, I think uh, the illustration that um, Terry Pratchett used was uh, Terry pra- uh, pra- Pratchett was the uh, duck-billed platypus. But the, uh, I mean, you have there are there's yeah you have I have to have a sense of humor uh, and. Uh, the anointed is set in a bar where you have working class people, who, and I've witnessed this when I've uh, been in working class areas of the city of Philadelphia, where there's the bars that open early in the morning where people getting off the night shift go in to have their dinners and a, and a drink, and the people getting ready to go to work you know, go in and have their breakfast and have a drink, something to fort, you know, fortify them to go to work or fortify them to go home. Mm. Uh, the uh, and so you have this is a story about individuals who are uh, one more religious traditionally than the other and their lives and and how the things become rather uh, disjointed and confused in the course of a couple of days but as we told in the bar and it's one of those it's one of those encounters it's like because sometimes you go into a bar and you don't know who you're going to meet sometimes. You don't know who's going to sit next to you. Even if you know who it is, you might not know the conversation that's about to spring forward. <laughs> no, you don't. I mean, it's uh, the, the bartender is the priest and, and, the, and the bar is the confessional. That's an old uh, adage. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're not just going to tell our stories to the bartender. Uh, we, I think, in fact, we're more likely to tell them across a table or across the bar to people we know and have some familiarity with who we are and what's going on in our lives, and uh, and so you have you have that there, and, and so, so a bar is bars are unnecessary. Uh, uh, I won't say evil. It's just, it's just a necessity in in Western culture. Um, Someone was telling me on Saturday that in England pubs are endangered because of their strict drunk driving rules that makes it harder for people are afraid to go to the pub. Mm-hmm. I mean, so oh my God, who are they going to talk to? About? Who are they going to tell these things to? Are they going to, uh, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to just act out of the soccer match to make up for it? I don't know. You know, you have to get things off your off your chest, and the bar is one of the places where you can do it if you're in the right crowd and you're both. Everyone's lubricated, and and the crowd's receptive. I definitely want to carry on with that when we come back. Joe Farley is our guest on the Brown Posey Press Show. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of authors from many genres. If you are into horror, thrillers, or fantasy, check out our Hellbender Books imprint, Thomas Malafarina's Malaformed Reality series, The Thirteenth Child by Nick Korolev, The State Changer series by Chris Fenwick, or the psychological thrillers of Keith Rommel. Find these and other works at the Hellbender Books tab and all works of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. We're back. Joe Farley is my guest, and we're talking about his collection of short stories, Farts and Daydreams. And I have a question for you, but I'm going to ask first about a couple of other pieces. We talked about the short story, Anointed. There's another one here called Butterflies. Tell us about this one. Oh, well, Butterflies, is that's based on a real experience. Okay. <laughs> that's literally what happened. It's a... Uh, 
Butterflies tells us about an, 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 someone going uh, to take the subway, uh, the L, Frankfurt Elevated in uh, Philadelphia at Independence Mall, where, where Liberty Bell is and uh, everything. It, it's, you know, it's a, uh, but it's under, it was under reconstruction for a long time. And the uh, and, uh, gentleman goes down there and, and encounters something that's, Beautiful and miraculous, and then it turns out to be not so miraculous. <laughs> and it's just like it's just a trick of the light, and what you thought you saw, and what you thought was beautiful is really something that's ugly, uh, which is more in keeping with uh, a subway station under or uh, elevated station. An under it goes underground at Fifth Street, the L Frankfurt L. So that's so it's the equivalent of a subway at that point before it goes above ground uh, it's a um, so it's you, you have something beautiful like butterflies but they turn out to be something else uh, you just uh, miss some miss a perception a wishful thinking and then you wind up with something that's you expect more to see in a decaying uh, urban setting mm-hmm. and one of the things that gets uh, a good look in in most authors if you know the area you're in or you feel like you've you've managed to really immerse yourself in it there is that ability to take the reader there how difficult is it in the format of a short story to take the reader to this very spot and get that whole experience in just a few pages is that something you think about when you write what you think about or what I think about is how familiar the individual will be with that area and how much do they have to be familiar with that area. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, Terry uh, Pratchett or again, uh, all alleys smell the same or something like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there are certain things that you don't have to be too specific about the location as the individual will be able to associate it with other urban areas. So if I'm in Baltimore, there's going to be sort of certain similarities to Philadelphia. If I'm in New York, there's going to be certain similarities to Philadelphia, which is why the studios will go with the cheaper location for filming a movie that's supposed to be set in a more expensive location because there are similarities between these urban areas. Uh, the, um, the same thing with Chicago. They're going to be things that any major decaying urban area or doesn't have to be completely decaying, but has has old flavor and old decay mixed in. It's, they're going to, there's going to be similarities. Selling the story to someone who's not as familiar with urban areas is more complex. So, but I try to make them as the stories as simple as possible in terms of setting that you can fill in the details. I believe in the three brush strokes, the four brush strokes to tell the, and let the mind fill in the details. I, especially for a short story. I mean, uh, some of the, I don't want to write a, try to pack a 19th century novel with, with minute details about everything that's happening. Uh, every detail of a room into a, into a uh, short story that's supposed to be a 10, 15 minute read. Mm-hmm. And it's not always necessary to have the most minute of details for that. But at the same time, 
and and that's the thing. That's where the rewrites for me come in. It's like, how much description have I just given? And is is this too much? Is this like, you know, are we getting too much into detail? And then it's like, okay, we can pull that back. We don't really need that. And it it takes a while for me sometimes to to go over something. And then it's like, uh, I'm like, oh man, I don't need all this. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, editing is, I mean, a different animal. You put, you know, I know people or tell writers to put their story in a drawer or their poem in a drawer for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, then take it out and look at it. Same thing that's on your computer. You, you know, you may want to work on another project for a while before you pull it up and start playing with it again. And, uh, and it's a, um, but what minutia a writer can get, can, can get, trapped by it may not be something really the reader cares about like oh should there be a space there should there be should, should i clarify that sentence further should i mm-hmm. do i need to have a little bit more detail do i have too much detail i mean is that sentence too long is that sentence too short i mean i, mean, I don't know if the reader really cares about all the uh, connections a writer goes through to, <laughs> to get into the final uh, product and well, that, I mean, it's, it's a labor. It is. It is. It's just, it's just one of those things where it's like you just have to sort of get into a flow of what really works and what doesn't. And, and it's the same thing with my projects. It's like when I finally get a draft done, I just make a conscious effort of just closing it out and putting it away. And I always just say, I'm just going to, you know, I leave it for, I'll leave it for a few days. I might leave it for a lot longer than that, depending on how busy I am. And just, uh, it's almost like you've worn yourself out writing this draft. It's like you need the batteries for your mind to recharge just on this story. And then then you can go back and be like, okay, I can have another bash at this now. I guess it's different for each person. Yeah, I, I, I think for me the, the first writing is, an, is like an emotional blah. You get it, you get it out. Yeah. and then you, But you know whatever is down there is going to be a mess. And you have <laughs> to then go back with a more rational mind and say, no, you can't say that, or you have to change that, or that's not going to be understood, or, and you have to just make it palatable for for an audience, um, no matter how big or small. You just have to make it more readable. Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking about how for the birds, your collection on Cynic Press was was one of your first collections, and I I did find that this was a little more. It, it was sort of like it wasn't tentative. It was a little more spare, and was but at the same time there was still stories that were easily told here, and uh, I found a lot of them were really quite straightforward, and some of them were pretty cool too in terms of you know things that you've seen, things that you obviously knew something about, and uh, I guess the one that really jumped out at me, and it's like almost like I knew him, the Kielbasa man. I'm like, I know a guy like this, and I did not live in Philly. I didn't even live in this neighborhood. It's kind of cool. Well, The Kielbasa Man is about someone selling uh, food from a cart. Uh, And that is an experience that you have in New York and Chicago. And I I have, like, Things in L.A. too. They have them, you know, any shore town, any any, uh, might have it. Uh, let's say, so I, th- I was thinking about the Confederacy of Dunces. I think there's an episode with a hot dog salesman. So yep. it's something that picks that's, and that's New Orleans. So it, it's, it's something that 
you know, there's something evil in that boiling fat. Uh, there, there's something that, uh, that, uh, and it does things to people. And then there is, you know, you know should a person eat that food and, and sh- from that cart or, and, and will it taste good? And what will what damage will it do later? Uh, you know, it's a but going to food vendors is a. I mean, considering the relative prices going to to some to a uh, sit down restaurant, I mean, it's 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 probably the most economical uh, way for eating in a lot of locations. But it's. Uh, it's not without its risks. Well, all the years I lived in Boston, the the food truck that would roll up at a couple of uh, my different jobs over the years, and it was, well, it was the cheaper alternative than going to one of the other places. And sometimes it would just be really, really, you know, you, you could smell something really good. And other times, I don't know if this is um, this is not a slur on anybody who runs a food truck, but in Boston we called them roach coaches. Well, in Philadelphia, uh, they used to call the buses roach coaches. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a long time ago. I don't think I haven't heard that term used since seventies. <laughs> we're speaking with Joe Farley, and we're going to talk more about his writings and some of his influences when we come back here on the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books is your home for the writings of independent authors. Loch Ness Books is our young adult imprint, including Joe Harvey's Summer Changes Everything, Deanne Baker's The Boaters Club, and Arcane Maurer's Forbidden Powers series. Find these and other books by diverse authors at sunburypress.com. We're back speaking with Joe Farley, and we're going to now take a look at his novel Labor Day, which came out on Peasantry Press and This was an interesting one. Humans of the future enhanced with the DNA of cockroaches. And we were just talking about them. And also this sort of 1984-esque landscape. Um, Tell us, first of all, Joe, what was the influence? Because I got a sort of an Orwellian and a dystopian influence as I was reading this right from the beginning. But tell us about this and, and... uh, the cockroach DNA. Where where did this all come from? Well, I can remember in high school and college and science classes being told that after they dropped the test bombs, the only thing left in the desert was uh, scorpions and cockroaches. Okay, so great. <laughs> so scorpions and cockroaches and can survive. And there's been other films that have done. That. In fact, there was a movie I didn't watch, but I could find it on YouTube where. Uh, cockroaches make their way to Mars and evolve into a, a, a you know some kind of uh, humanoid race but it's been done in, in cartoons or things other things I mean so scorpions and so I take that scorpions and cockroaches thing and 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 I say oh so back in the heyday of the Cold War you know early genetic researchers uh, uh, the uh, decide to oh well, well Mix some of this in our in our kids and, and see if that'll help them out. And then uh, so you get people with cockroach and scorpion DNA, and what happens to that? And then who could afford that? You know, so an, an elite can afford that, and and uh, so elites are elites, and they function as elites wherever they are. Uh, you know, certainly communist countries like China have their elites. And uh, the Soviet Union had their elite, as uh, an animal farm made that clear. The there are elites, and so this is about elites, but it's also uh, 
not entirely anti-capitalistic. It's a, it's pro-small business, but it's uh, questionable about large uh, corporate control and large intermingling of government and corporations. And uh, so this was uh, being written. Uh, we had something called the Great Recession <clears throat> that happened. And um, so this was written when things sort of went south there and um, there was a lot of givebacks being done and a lot of people were losing jobs and things were a little problematic but as my mother used to tell me no one's starving in the streets it's not the great depression okay yeah so it's okay you got it you had it worse i no problem i understand that and oh my my mom would have said the same thing yeah, that's you. We had Hitler. Yeah, well, now we have Putin, so I guess we're getting closer. Not quite there. We, you know, we're still doing better. We still have some uh, great social service, uh, so, uh, social service na- safety net here. Not maybe not as large as in Europe, but we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, it's and I'm glad we have it. And I, I, you know, but this, this, so this has to do with some anger about things that were happening in uh, in our country and in the world and. Uh, and then science fiction, and you you work the things in that you, in a way, then that you can sublimate them, and to also to just make them entertaining in some ways as you talk about things. And uh, so here I have the rich and the poor, and you have cockroaches. And oh, the cockroaches! What are cockroaches? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they both? What are cockroaches? Yeah. And- and your hero is this man named Tom who is – he's working for one of these firms. He's kind of like the man in the middle and he gets the conflict of you know, he just wants to do his job. He just wants to get on with his life and yet at the same time he's being put into a position of – where he becomes kind of a questioner. Well, I, I think that has called middle management. <laughs> <laughs> where you what's your loyalty to the company i mean are you loyal to your coworkers or are you loyal to the company if you get promoted to a certain in certain areas you have to change your loyalty you have to be, oh yeah oh, okay i gotta you know you have to show where your loyalty is and that's get difficult that can be difficult i mean there there's uh you have to you, are you can you still pal around with your old pals <laughs> it's 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 complex uh i think uh that Labor Day was an interesting exercise for me as a writer, and I think it's an interesting and fun read. For uh, I mean, I've gotten a lot of nice comments about it. I mean, it's certainly not a million seller, but it's. Um, I think it's a. I think it's a good good read and, a, and an enjoyable read. Mm-hmm. And one of the things too was noted uh, in your in the uh, the liner writings. Um, it's uh, you come from a very pro-union family and a family that's that's had a real respect for that. And did that inf- it must have informed uh, your writing of this was your understanding of them, um, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Well, my 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 father uh, considered uh, FDR to be a god. Mm-hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the best thing. You know, OK, great. And uh, and he did a lot of great good things for this country uh um i think that i mean so i don't think that can be denied and not seriously uh and he was my father was also when he was younger was involved in something called the catholic uh, workers movement mm-hmm. which is sort of a communism with a catholic flair and uh 
Dorothy Day and some other people were involved. I used to get the Catholic Worker paper in the 60s, and, and uh, then it disappeared. But uh, so I had some. Uh, we don't have like in Europe. They they have these parties that are probably more in line with thinking of my my my, my old household when I was growing up. But it's a, it's a uh, but it's so we had this spirituality linked to uh, socialism uh, in the household, uh, and that sort of comes into the novel. And I also had an uncle uh, who was by marriage who was uh, a member of the Communist Front of the uh, Furrier and uh, Garment Workers Union or something like that back in the 1920s and 1930s. So we had some people who were uh, fairly on the left, but I've also had members of my family who were very right-wing, so it's... you get it you get it out. you get it in each family right well that leads me into asking about your your upbringing you you've talked quite a bit about you know you had parents that made it through the depression made it through some really rough times as my folks did um what was your growing up like and uh what kind of influenced you in the direction that you ended up going i'm i the background is always important <laughs> well my parents are both avid readers and believed that a lot of books was a, was a sign of true wealth. Mm -hmm. So we had bookcases full of books. They didn't read the same things. My father read mostly history, politics, things about trains, uh, things about Ireland. And my mother read mysteries and, uh, fantasies and a lot of things about ghosts and, UFOs and like like uh, Stephen King and horror things, uh, and she also loved uh, folk tales. Uh, so when I was little, my mother used to read me a lot of folk tales from around the world. So I I read a lot of folklore, and then I read that later, and I read a lot of folklore, and in books. Was, oh, I mean, I was my parents taught us that. You know, if you don't read, you're not. There was something you have to read. When I got older and started going into houses, and there's like the only reading material in the house is an issue of Guns and Ammo. It's like, and they're nice people, but the only thing they have is Guns and Ammo, or you know, popular mechanics, or something, or you know, it's or or, the, or a children's guide, and it's a to to repairing a car. I mean, it's fine. That's fine. It's there, but it's like so it was cultural shock, you know. <laughs> It, My parents didn't have a lot of money, but it was just like they like books. Well, and that was the same thing. I had, I had. There were just tons of books in my family. My parents were the same way. They read different things. My mom read much more than my father did because he just didn't have a lot of time to do it. But mm -hmm. there was that. There was also the benefit of having three older siblings who loved to read. Again, different things. So I was very, I was very influenced by their music as well as their reading. And so I'm, I'm thankful that my folks really prized it. And so there was never a problem about, you know, it's like, oh, you know, he, he, you know, like when you when you're in the store and it's like you want to buy a book, it's like, oh, mom's cool with that. So, you know, and I was like, OK, and, and that was that was a cool thing. But it also opened a lot of doors. How about some of what you were reading yourself in terms of like uh, what really stood out for you, the authors, stories, that kind of thing? When I was a child, or at what point in my life? Because uh, as a kid, yeah, as a as a kid, yeah. Then then moving up into that. 
Well, when I was a little kid, uh, I, there's two books. I don't know the author's names, but there were two books that were very three that were, were that were meant a lot to me when I was a little kid. One was called The Ghost of Dibble Hollow. One was called The Witch Family, and one was called The Pushcart War. And that's when I was a, like a real little kid. Those those stories stood out. And when I got older, it was Mark Twain and Ed Crown Poe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, and it evolved, you know, getting to high school, you know, oh, it's Tolkien. Oh, yeah, Tolkien, 15 year old, you got to read Tolkien. And then, uh, you know, not a lot of people read them younger, but that's when I got them. And then you get older and you read, oh, no, Dostoevsky in college. Oh, it's Dostoevsky's everything. And later on, oh, Bukowski's everything. But I, I, I mean, I read a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, uh, I when I you know start working, oh, I had to work. Yeah. So once you start working, you know, you don't read as much. Uh, I'm not sure have a, a quiet bus ride, which uh, is doesn't always happen. And if you're mm-hmm. if you're, you can listen to a book, uh, or an audible or on tape, if you have a player of some kind um, in a car, but uh, Reading has been uh, not uh, has been in decline. I'm afraid, even for me, because of the way uh, things are. I mean, I, I still read, but the the big years for reading were before I was thirty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I used to read a lot. It does seem to but, get that way, yeah. Um, in terms of the evolution of your writing, it's like, um, where do you see your work fitting in terms of the audience what what is you know where does it fit in the in the reading world where does it fit for people who are looking for something unique like what you do well one of the benefits of living today is the internet it's also a curse in many ways but the internet allows for uh audiences that are separated by hundreds of miles to be created because i may have like readers and Georgia and Washington, D.C. and Saskatchewan and maybe in Japan and, uh, you know, Jakarta and like you're scattered all over the world. And suddenly you have, you know, that's an audience. Uh, but it's would in, in terms of because I I'm not locked into writing one type of story as far as in daydreams illustrates. I mean, <laughs> I have. Uh, I have like things that are very, uh, very urban locations and very uh, gritty, and then I have things that are like fantastical and and things that are surreal, and I have things that are political, and I have things that are uh, borderline horror and uh, fantasy in, the, in there. So you have you have a, a mixed bag. Um, so what is the audience? I think there's something for every type of audience in Farce and Daydreams. But if you talk about my, but if you talk about my work in general, because I'm eclectic, uh, it's really, it's a matter of, uh, an audience finding the work and finding that they like it and then want more, wanting more. And then, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have been published as I, as much as I have, but uh, all the publishers have been small and have not really been able to do much in terms of marketing or publicity. So I'm out there, but it's just 
these are not easy to get. Well, books are well-known books. It never is uh, when you're on an indie or you're self-publishing, but it's, yeah. it's it's a struggle, and we just keep forward with that. Um, so what is next for you? What's what's ha- coming on the horizon? Well, Dumpster Fire Press has uh, agreed uh, to do another story collection next year, so I'm trying to polish that up, uh, and we'll see what happens to that, and I always keep my fingers crossed that the press will actually still be in existence at that time because there's a we're small presses. Uh, they seem to be there and then not there, and you're just very lucky to have their support uh, while you can. But I really, Mike Zone at Dumpster Fire Press has been great to me, and, uh, uh, and I, I hope his press continues for many more years for my sake because I'm selfish, but also because he puts out nice, interesting stuff. Right. Uh, but the... Um, for me, that's the next thing on the horizon, and uh, and I have I have a, a a novella I'm working on that could become a, a novel. I have to finish it. I mean, I did a rough draft. That's what I'm working on, and I also write a lot of poetry, which is even harder to find an audience for than for fiction. But at this stage, I think I just probably just going to keep just writing it out and throwing it in a box and say. After I'm dead, you can type it up. I'm too tired. <laughs> well, okay. And where uh, where can people find your work at this time? Well, Farce and Daydreams and Labor Day can be can be found uh, on Amazon. Um, unfortunately, uh, the uh, For the Birds is pretty much out of print. I mean, I have some copies at home, but uh, it's they're not really it's not really easy to get. If I am at a uh, if I'm at something like Amazicon or uh, Philcon or something, I might have a table and have some stuff there. But the uh, the newer stuff uh, can be gotten on Amazon um, and, when, and from other services. I mean, I th- they're available from uh, uh, I think it's Kobo or uh, there's other services that uh, have them and. Uh, and there may even be an audible version of one of these books. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but that's, that's just do a search for Joseph Farley fiction uh, or a specific title and, uh, and my name, and you should find it, um, a link to purchasing it. Okay. My last question. Uh, what advice do you give, uh, authors who are aspiring to become authors? Uh, those who are thinking about picking it up, what would you tell them? Writing is like playing the lottery. Uh, you might win very big, uh, you, but most likely, statistically, you're not going to make any money. So, well, you have to really love what you're doing, or or have a emotional compulsion to do it. You have to be driven to do it. Otherwise, it's you might find more joy out of gardening or uh, racing cars. The uh, you, but if this is something that you need to do, just do it and don't listen to editors and too much. Don't listen to the publishers too much. Just do what you do, and keep get it doing it until you have the story or the poem or whatever it is in the shape you want it to be in. And when you're satisfied with it, just send it out and 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 so on until it gets published somewhere. And while you're waiting for someone to say yes, write something else. 
And eventually you'll have a body of work and someone will say, hey, you have a body of work. And hmm, this is this is a little interesting. And maybe I'll interview you on my podcast. <laughs> well, that certainly happened. Joe, thank you so much for being on. Joe Farley has been our guest on the Brown Posey Press Show. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Tori. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, A Moment in the Sun, and Lie from the Cafe, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. <laughs>